Well, welcome to church. We have made it to Ephesians chapter 4, and that's, that's a big thing for us because we started Ephesians in January. So we started a little bit, took a break, and now we're back, and the letter is sent to the Ephesians written by the Apostle Paul. This is where Paul begins to instruct the church that they are to reflect the character, character of Jesus in their daily living. Those are the six verses that John just read to us. For the Christians here today, this is written to the church. This is where that popular phrase, this is where the rubber meets the road, can be applied. This is it. Paul has spent much of his time in the first three chapters of this letter explaining who the Christian is, what they have received, who they now are, who they once were, who they now are in Christ. He has explained the mystery of the gospel, this being that the Christian has access to and understands and experiences the breadth and length and height and depth of Jesus' love for us. This is a mystery. The gospel, Paul calls, calls it a mystery. It's a, a mystery of a God who so loved the world that he would give his one and only son. And that whoever would, be sac- uh, whoever would believe in that sacrifice would be saved and given eternal life. It's the mystery of a God who takes sinners turns them into saints, and creates one new mankind. Mankind who is holy, set apart, united in his spirit, able to do his will. If this were not enough, Paul wrote in the first chapter of this letter, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Three chapters of explaining all the blessings the Christian receives because of their faith. Those who believe in Jesus have been blessed in every way that Jesus Christ has been blessed. So let me explain this just a little bit, what these blessings could be, because this, I think, helps us set up chapter 4. The Bible says that we have been given the love of God. Paul, the same author who wrote this letter, wrote a letter to the church in Rome. In chapter 5, he said, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so we once did not know or understand love. Now we actually have the love of God. We, it's a great gift. We can know it, we can experience it, and we can extend the love of God to others. That's one blessing for the Christian. Another one, it says, God has blessed us with peace. John chapter 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This is a blessing the Christian has received because of their faith. There was a time when the cares of this world consumed our heart and mind. That is true of me and is true of you. And peace was a foreign concept. But, best word in the Bible, remember that, okay? But, but God, through Jesus, has blessed us with peace. In fact, we've been given the, the same weight and measure of peace that Jesus now experiences with God. The same weight and measure if you are in Christ This peace has quieted our soul. It's provided protection from the enemy's condemnation. And it has protected us from the world's attempt to cause worry and doubt about our faith. Here's another one. God has blessed us with true joy and happiness. John 15, verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that my joy be in you and that your joy may be full. The Christian has been blessed with joy, the type of joy that can withstand pretty much anything. The death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the breakdown in relationship, the joy of Jesus Christ, the eternal word has been given to us as a blessing. And therefore, our joy is full. 
These and many more like them are the resources, Paul would say, that we are given as the church, as God's children. These blessings characterize our new life in Christ as well. We once were, but now are. That's the entire story of the Bible. Remember, these things are not promised to us. We already possess them. Now, we forget this pretty much on a daily basis. But remember, these things aren't promised to us in the future when we attain some lofty uh, level of Christianity. Upon your faith, immediately, you are given all the resources in Christ Jesus. Tremendous thing to remember. We have what Paul calls the provision of the Spirit of Jesus. These blessings are unlimited for all who have faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, here's who you are now. That is the first three chapters of this letter. It's what he does over and over and over again. Here is what you've been given in Jesus. Here's who you are as a Christian. Now comes chapter four. So chapter four is significant for us as a church because chapter four through the end of the letter, through chapter six, are instructions for us to now go and do. All right, so the first three chapters, here's who you are. Here's what God has done. Now go and do. And I want you to understand, maybe you don't have um, you know, familiarity with the church or with the Bible. The, Bible's, uh, the gospel is not a religion. So we don't do these things in order that we get the blessings. We do these things because we've already been given the blessings. Amen? We, we do things out of the overflow of our hearts, out of the, the spirit-led word of God. Like We do things because of what Christ has done for us. We don't do them so Jesus would love us. So comes chapter 4, and some of you are note takers, you're list checkers, you just want to check your boxes, and man, you're going to be in heaven like the next three chapters because there's just so many things to do. You're going to be knocking it out, right? The first three chapters, you guys were bored, like, come on, give me something to do. Well, here you go. You'll be busy the rest of your life. You're welcome. All right? So let, let, let's work through the first six verses that John read to us. I will admit I'm going to focus predominantly on verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to end the sermon with the next four, Okay? So chapter four, verse one, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I urge you to actually live your life worthy of your salvation. I want you to live your life in a way that reflects what Jesus has done for you. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. This worthy walk has the idea of someone who walks through this life, um, who who lives life in a balanced way. Think of the old school scales, okay? You put something on one side, you put something on the other side, and you want it to balance. What Paul is telling the church is that he desires for them, he's urging them to live a balanced life, right? So we have to balance the first three chapters of our life with the next three chapters of our life according to Ephesians. We have to balance what we know who we are in Christ with how we live in this life following Christ. They have to balance. A worthy walk is a balanced scale of what we know and how we act. What we know and how we act. So here's the big idea. The big idea of Paul and what I believe he's attempting to teach us is that a worthy walk is when our practical living matches our spiritual position. Okay, so first three chapters, here's who you are now. This is your position in God, in Christ. Here's what he's done for you. Now Paul says, I urge you then, because of that, live this way. So I'm going to take us through the four actions or 
characteristics of a spiritual position in Christ. He lays them out right there in verse 2. There's four of them. Humility and gentleness with patience and love. So I'm going to go through those four, okay? So the first one is going to be humility. He urges us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with humility. Humility, I want you to think of, um, to judge or to think of yourself with lowliness. That's humility. Initially, we may all understand what humility is or what it means, but we often tend to gloss over it because it's used so much. But the original audience, some authors would say, humility, the word humility, to be humble, to think of themselves with lowliness was a foreign concept. John Wesley, a pastor who died in the 1700s, right? So that's like way back. He said, neither the Romans or the Greeks had a word for humility. They didn't even have a word in the vocabulary to think of themselves with lowliness. It's a proud culture. Why would you ever waste time on being humble? That's not going to get you anywhere. Strange, isn't it? I mean, this word is common for us, but to the ancient civilizations, they didn't even have a word to describe what Paul was trying to communicate to them. To think or to judge oneself with lowliness was a foreign idea. In fact, the word humility may have been made popular by Paul in this context at this church. There was no other word to describe the walk of a Christian. One author said during the first several centuries of Christianity, when the pagan non-Christian writers When non-Christian writers, they would borrow the word humility from the Christian community. Whenever they wrote using it, it was used degradingly, and it was used um, to describe weakness. It was never written as an asset, right? It was a liability. Paul calls us to think or to judge ourselves with lowliness. Right away, we should realize And this is not how the world thinks. This is not how we've been trained. This is not what culture wants you to be. They don't want you to be humble. In fact, the world thinks humility is pitiful or degrading or weak or worthless even, unless it's getting you what you want, which is not really humility at that point, isn't it? So here's my question. Do we as the church, do we believe humility to be a virtue? Is it something we desire to seek? Or do you consider humility a weakness? Now, Here's where the rubber meets the road, right? Many of us would stand up and say, no, 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 we are humble Christians. We believe in humility. And Paul would say, well, I believe your actions tell a different story. This is the life of a Christian. Remembering who we are in Christ and then having it manifest in our life. Friends, here's how you know your scale is not balanced in regards to knowing who you are in Christ, your spiritual position, and living humble, your practical living. Here's how you know the, the, the balance is, is off. First one, you have not kneeled at the cross of Jesus Christ. You have not submitted yourself to God. You have not sought his forgiveness. You have not received salvation. You're far too proud to confess to God that you are worthless, wretched, and sinful, and therefore you're going to go about your day doing what you wish. Now, some of you are saying, oh, he's talking to non-Christians. No, I'm talking to Christians. Friends, every time the Bible is opened, a pastor or a preacher can never take for granted that he may be speaking to Christians who are not saved. We must submit ourselves to the cross. Salvation only comes by way of the cross. Salvation only comes to those who are humble enough to say, I'm worthless. Jesus is not. Save me. That's it. 
And some of us, even in our Christian life, live in this very prideful way where we don't mind the blessings of God. We read the Bible because it's interesting and full of stories and great moral teaching. And maybe even within your family, it's gained you some social status. But friends, if you're not humble enough to kneel before the cross of Jesus Christ and and receive salvation, you're not walking in humility. Number two, you're always right and everyone else you know is wrong. Okay, one guy admits it, right? (laughs) Amen. Welcome to the club. So just in case you're wondering, this is all of you, okay? But don't worry because I'm the chief here at this church, right? I'm the worst sinner you know. Don't worry. Worst sinner saved by grace. And remember... I get beat down by this sermon way before I give it to you, okay? So God has done a work in my life in the past week way before I get to preach it to you. But humility is not a virtue in your life. You're not chasing after humility. You don't desire to be mastered by humility if you were always right and everyone you know is, for some reason, completely wrong. Number three, you are not willing to come under the authority of those whom God has placed in your life, like solid spiritual authority. You submit yourself to church, you're involved in the church, you have loving people who follow Christ and who are looking at you and telling you and urging with you and pleading with you and praying for you to be transformed in the image of Christ and you simply walk away because you know better. It's not humility. Four, you surround yourself with people you feel superior to. That's how you know you're not chasing humility. Number five, your view of hurting or homeless or poor people, your feeling towards them is condemnation and disgust. Humility is not a virtue to you. Number six, rarely, maybe never, have you sought out advice for anything significant. Anything significant. I'm not talking about the rib recipe or when you put your kids down to bed or how you shovel your driveway because there's many ways to do that. I'm talking about matters of life and death and relationships and marriage and parenting and your work ethic and your spiritual development. I'm talking about everything. Rarely do you seek out significant advice from anybody. Why? Because two reasons. Number one, I'm far too prideful to even admit I need it. And I don't believe you anyways because number two says I'm always right. So what's the point? Seven. This is a hard one for us. If you're a parent, you have never gotten down on one knee and sought the forgiveness for your children. You've never had to approach your children and say, I'm sorry, I failed you, and I'd like to seek your forgiveness. Parents, we want our children to walk with Christ and display humility. Well, then it first must be displayed in our home. You've never gotten down on one knee to seek the forgiveness from your children, or you've never asked a spouse to forgive you? Listen, I know they're always wrong and you're always right. It's like, it's like that way in my house too, all right? But you must seek the forgiveness from your spouse because you're wronging them almost every day. Maybe not in a significant way, but you're gonna fail. Here's a tough one. I'll, 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 I'll add on to the one I just said. You, you apologize maybe to your child or to someone you've wronged, or you apologize and seek the forgiveness of your spouse, but then you continue to blame them for the very fact that you had to apologize for them, to them. That's pride. 
By the way, that's demonic if you were wondering. That's not right. Don't do that. Don't blame people that you have to apologize to them because they pointed out something that you need to apologize for. I could go on and on and on because I am the chief sinner, but I'm going to stop because then you're going to know way too much about me. It's going to be embarrassing. So many of us, here's the point. Many of us are unbalanced. Our scales are unbalanced because we would amen and worship with hands raised because of who we are in Christ. And Paul says, now go and do it. And man, that's tough, isn't it? It's very tough. The first sin is always pride, the opposite of humility. The first sin and every sin after it has been an extension of your pride. Prideful was Lucifer. He wanted to exalt himself above God. Right? The Bible called him the bright morning star who continually said, I will, I will, I will, I will. And never submitted to God's will. He was cast out of heaven. Isaiah 14. Because Lucifer said, I am God, the Lord cast him from the mountain of God, Ezekiel 28. Friends, the original sin of Adam and Eve was pride. Trusting in their own understanding and looking at God and saying, I mean, I know you mean good for us, but you're always wrong and I'm always right. That's pride. The writer of Proverbs says, Proverbs 11 Verse 2, you can write these down. I'm going to show you one of them on the slide. There's three of them. Proverbs 11, chapter 11, verse 2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Pride is tricky because it tells us we're awesome and everything we're doing is amazing. The Bible says the longer you're prideful, here it comes. Get ready. Disgrace will follow. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Sometimes we can read these verses that have been, you know, written a long time ago and think of pride goes before destruction like like a temple or a city. Was there a fight? Old Testament, is this an army? No, could be. But pride will always lead to the destruction of something in your life. The destruction of a relationship significantly. That, like, that's probably the most significant thing. Pride will destroy your life. Proverbs 21 verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. So here's what sin is. Haughty eyes, a proud heart, they're sin. I know some of you are going to say, John, I, I'm a Christian. I know who I am in Christ, but listen, it's just the way God created me. It's just a character flaw. Stubborn is not a character flaw. It's sin, <laughs> okay? Do me a favor. This entire week, don't use the word stubborn. You, stubborn, use the word pride and then call it sin and see how that changes your perspective. Like, I get it if you're stubborn and you want to hit the golf ball and you're not going to stop until you do. That's not sin. But when someone comes to you and says, you're about to be destroyed because of your pride, don't go, yeah, I wish I could listen. I'm just so darn stubborn. It's not a character defect. It's sin. It's pride. Paul leads with humility for a reason in this verse. Because just as pride is the root of all sin, so humility is that essential ingredient in every spiritual blessing that he's already talked about in chapters 1 through 3. Pride leads to sin, 
But humility is an ingredient in every blessing that we're ever going to receive from God. No one can even become a Christian without becoming humble, without saying, I am wrong. The Christian cannot please God without remaining humble. Humility then, humility is, the, is that foundational Christian characteristic. It should describe the Christian. Just as Jesus himself emptied himself, the eternal word became flesh. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, taking on a form like you and I. And then he humbled himself and he was obedient to God the Father, even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If anyone had the right to say, wait, the cross, I'm God, not me. What does he do? He walks in humility. He remains obedient. Now, here is where a warning must be given. If that has convicted you or moved you, praise God. If some of you go, yeah, I'm pretty proudful and it's just destroying my life. Praise God. There is hope and restoration by walking with Christ. Amen? That's the power of the gospel. Here is a warning. Humility is elusive. Very, very, it's slippery, right? It's like a wet water balloon. You can't even really hold on to it. Because if you focus too much on humility, you will become proud. Well, that doesn't work. We are told to seek humility, but then we're really encouraged to never confess that we've actually found it. Because that would be the opposite of what we're going for. Once you claim to be humble, you have forfeited your humility. Do you understand what I'm saying? No one stands up and says, Friends, family, I invited you all here today. To, I'm so happy that I've walked with Jesus so closely. I have found humility. Well, that is the definition of pride. You see how it is? It's a very strange thing. So let me encourage you. You're not ever going to be completely mastered or master humility. It's not going to happen. Not until you see Jesus face to face. You're going to struggle with this because your flesh is going to want something and your spirit's going to say, no, no, you, you shouldn't have that one thing. You should go over here. It's going to back and forth in your life. We will be in a constant battle because our flesh is weak. So remember, just remember this. Pride is the sin of competing with God. Remember this in the situations where your pride is beginning to well up and think, I am about to go toe-to-toe and compete with the guy who spoke everything into existence. I think I'll back down, right? I think I'll take a step back and realize who I am and who he is. Pride is competing with God. Therefore, humility is submitting to God. Humility is submitting to God. So here's, let me, uh, let me equip you with a way to battle pride, okay, this week. This is the hardest, but it's gonna have the biggest impact on your life as you follow Christ, okay? When the word of God, when the Bible labels your actions as sinful, agree and repent. You can say, well, I thought there was like something different. Nope. I'm going to give you the hardest thing there is to do because you might as well shoot high, right? And just, right? Might as well go for the big thing. Battle your pride by simply receiving someone's word towards you or the word of God when you read it and you say, that's not who I am. I don't think I should be doing that because I'm in Christ and I know the love of God and I live in his peace and I'm filled with joy and now my flesh is weak. So I'm going to fail. Monday afternoon is my worst day ever. I'm going to fail. Well, guess what? When you sin, 
Don't remain prideful. Seek humility and come before God and seek his forgiveness and repent. That's the cycle of the Christian life. That's all of our life. It's being confident in what God has done for us and repenting and walking away from our sins so we can be conformed to the image of Christ. Friends, there is restoration and healing in the spirit of God, amen? But you'll never receive it or even understand it or begin to be restored if your pride is stopping you from repenting. Now, most of us, you have somebody in your life that loves you that much. That's gonna tell you you're wrong, right? We all got them, okay? You think they're annoying. God says, no, they're righteous. I've put them there for a reason. So if you have a loved one coming towards you and saying, I don't think you need to be doing that anymore, you better not say, well, you're always wrong and I'm always right, so I don't know where this is coming from, right? (laughs) That's not our approach. Our approach is, wow, you're right. The word of God says I should not be doing that. I'm a Christian. Let me repent. Church, let me remind you, we don't have to walk in humility. It's not a have to. We get to. We get to walk in humility. We get to walk in gentleness and patience and love. And let me tell you, I'm not encouraging you to do this because it works. That's like 10th reason on my list. But I encourage you to walk in this way because in this way you will find life and life everlasting. They agree. (laughs) I I should just end but I'm not going to because I preach forever. Okay, here we go. Now, Paul leads with humility because humility produces gentleness, number two, okay? Now, they're not all that long. I already know where some of you are at in your head. Is he gonna talk about everyone that long? Just relax, okay? That's your pride. Boom, all right. Second, gentleness. This means to be mild-spirited or self-controlled. That's what we're getting at. That's the action. Mild-spirited and self-controlled. You could use the word meek here as well. So God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, which frees us to live a life of self-control. Gentleness is like power under control. Gentleness is not timidity, but it is a powerful, it is a righteous power under control. One author said this, that Paul uses the, uh, the word that Paul uses for gentleness was used for wild animals after they had been tamed like a horse that had been broken or trained. The animals still have their strength, but that strong animal is living under the control of its master. That's the Christian life, amen? The tame lion is still powerful, right? We're not gonna just willingly walk into the cage. That lion is still powerful, but its power is under control of its master. The horse can run just as fast as the horse has always run, but the horse only runs where the master is tells him to run. This is gentleness. This means we're to be mastered by gentleness and we're to be walking a worthy call, mastered by gentleness. So here's a few characteristics of gentleness. Quiet, calm, sort of calm under the hand of God, right? When Jesus spoke to that storm in the New Testament, there was this time when the storm was raging and Jesus said, peace be still and creation obeyed the person of Jesus. Your life is like that, calm, under the storm. Soothing, mild-mannered, 
Not, here's what gentleness is not. It is not avenging or vindictive or self-defensive, right? Self-defensive. Guess what happens when you're prideful? You become self-defensive. Guess what happens when somebody says, I love you. You're destroying yourself. No, I am not. That's why humility is first, then comes gentleness. There was this time right before Jesus was arrested and he's about to be crucified and he's in this garden and a whole bunch of Roman soldiers come and they're going to arrest him and they're going to arrest him so they can lie about him so they can kill him. And they come to arrest him and one of his guys named Peter pulls out a sword and he's going to defend Jesus. And Jesus says, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. I'm setting up the real verse I want to read you. That's the first verse. Second verse. Then he says, do you think, this is Jesus talking to Peter. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, do you not, I'm God in the flesh. I've demonstrated that over and over and over again. Do you not think that if I wanted to get out of this situation that I could not? I could. I could this very moment call down 12 legions of angels. That's like a whole lot of angels. Like one would do in my case, Jesus has got all sorts of them. What does he do? He remains gentle. Power under control. Jesus had this divine power to remain gentle. And we have been given the same blessing. Here's a practical verse to remember about gentleness. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger... I would say the opposite of, you know, mild-mannered self-control is quick to anger. So I'm just making that connection. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Whoever is gentle is stronger than the mighty person. Whoever is gentle and rules his spirit under self-control is stronger than he who can destroy an entire city. Slow to anger is a sign of gentleness. And when you're slow to anger, you're better than those who are strong enough to do whatever they want. This means a true sign of strength is that your life is ruled by the Spirit of God, okay? Your life is ruled and mastered and tamed by the Spirit of God. Here's some characteristics of gentleness. Number one, gentleness submits to godly wisdom. It does. It submits to godly wisdom. Gentleness strengthens your relationships, It strengthens relationships. When gentleness is aimed towards your spouse or your children, you will produce a healthy culture which your family will thrive in. When husbands are gentle, your children and your wife will thrive. Gentleness in the workplace produces the type of leadership which I believe corporate America is lacking. Mild-mannered self-control. Gentleness in the church, for us, if we're going to be gentle towards one another, if our practical living is going to match our spiritual position, we're going to be gentle. And when the church is gentle, let me tell you, those on the outside are going to want to come inside and understand where that comes from because they're not told to be gentle. Humility produces gentleness. Gentleness produces, next, patience. Third, patience. To be long-tempered or long-suffering. Not short fuse, long fuse. Takes you a long time to get upset. 
Patience is the lost virtue because we live in a fast-paced world. We want it, we want it now, and we can get it. It's that easy. To be long-tempered is to remain calm when your plans don't go your way. Surprise, they won't. This means the Christian is patient in the home, knowing that God is at work, even through all the mess. The Christian husband is patient with his wife. The Christian husband is patient with his wife. Not one of y'all said amen. Gotcha. The Christian husband is patient, long-tempered, with his wife lovingly leading, praying, and seeking the best for her. Ah, ladies thought, yeah, get him. Nope, your turn. The Christian wife. The, <laughs> right, you're like, never mind. The Christian wife is patient with her husband, lovingly submitting to his Christ-like leadership. I'm going to say that again because some of you guys missed that one. You were just heard the word submit and you're like, gotcha. Nope, listen. The Christian wife is patient with her husband, lovingly submitting to his Christ-like leadership praying for him as he grows into the strong man of God. The Christian parent is patient with their children, putting in the hard work of loving them, disciplining them, discipling them, so that those children would grow up and hear and receive the gospel. Friends, I remember the very day I realized, it's a few years back, although I fail, that I realized I did no longer have to raise my voice to my children. And it wasn't because I reached the level of intellectualism you have not reached yet is because God had taught me that, and he gave me that by his grace. And I realized this is about to change everything. Amen? This is about to change everything. You see, these aren't things we have to do, church. We get to do these things. This is where life is found. The Christian person who is single, I know you're impatient because you're amazing, and uh, I don't understand why anybody didn't want me. The Christian single person is patient, waiting for God to bring the someone into their life. And they will not sacrifice their walk with Jesus in order to be accepted or loved or feel worthy or to not live of fear of their missing out on something. The Christian single person is patient. The Christian person is patient in the workplace, long-tempered in the workplace. Yeah, I know. You're like, I want to hear what you got to say about this one. You guys just replayed, you know, just revealed yourself. The, I wait for people to chuckle, then I just look at them when I preach. That's just joking. <laughs> the Christian... <laughs> I'm glad you guys are my friends. The Christian patient... The Christian is patient. I got to finish. The Christian is patient in the workplace. Here's, here's how. Humbly and gently honoring their employer. Whether or not they get what they deserve in the promotion or the project or the job. You want to display Christ-like virtues in your workplace? Be long-tempered in your workplace. People will have no, they'll look at you like you're an alien. Because seven people are over here are very upset at what just happened. And you're over here going, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm... A lot of our impatience, a lot of our short temper, it comes 
because we're anxious, because, because we're wondering and we're worrying about what's to come. Jesus says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow's anxious for itself. Some of you are impatient and short-tempered about Tuesday. It hasn't even shown up yet. There's a chapter in the book of Romans, same author, different book. And he writes to the church in Rome, and here's what he said. The same God that knows you before the foundations of the world were created is the same God that called you to salvation, is the same God that saved you, is the same God that is conforming you in the image of Jesus Christ, and it's the same God that's going to see you in eternity. All that's planned out. So if you are a Christian... God has already said, I already knew you, and then I called you, and then I saved you, and now I'm transforming you, and then I'm going to glorify you. And we are sitting here today doing what? I wonder what's going to happen tomorrow. Friends, I, Paul urges us that our practical decision-making and living would match who we already are in Christ. If you are impatient, Here's the last thing about impatience, or yeah, about being um, short-tempered, and then we'll go on to love. If you are impatient, if you are short-tempered, it is because you are not worshiping God, you are worshiping yourself as God. You are worshiping self. That means you are the highest, most supreme authority, creator of all things, right? And all the creation around you isn't obeying what you are saying as the creator, and you don't know why, because they're all wrong. They're pri- you're prideful too, by the way. And you're probably not gentle in that process either. Right? Gotcha. See, listen. If you're impatient, it's because you're worshiping yourself. If you're impatient, it's because you believe yourself to be the creator and you are not. Now, praise God, he has saved us from worshiping ourselves so we can worship him. Praise God that he has saved us so we could fully submit our lives to his plans, a life of patience, trusting and loving, and gentleness. Humility leads to gentleness, leads to patience, leads to the last one, forbearing love. And I'll begin to close. Just joking, I just wanted you to perk up. Fourth, forbearing love. The type of love given continuously and unconditionally. Forbearing love. Bearing with one another in love. Many of us struggle to love others well, even though we long to. Here's the deal. I think you want to love people. I think we do. I think we attempt to all the time. I think we want to love people, but we don't love them well because we don't make this connection. Here's a connection I want you to understand. Without humility and gentleness and patience, loving others the way Jesus has loved you is impossible. It's impossible. So some of us who have not submitted ourselves to the word of God are attempting to live a Christian life simply by doing all the do's and the don'ts. That's called religion. It's not going to get you anywhere. What I want you to do is I want you to start over here and I want you to first realize who you are in Christ, what he has done for you. See, at our church, what the Bible, what the Bible says is everything we do comes out of the joy of our hearts for what Christ has already done for us. We don't do things so we get Jesus. We get to do things because we have Jesus. Amen? Because he has died for us and paid our, our, our debt to God, because he is transforming our lives, because he is renewing my spirit, I will pursue humility and patience and gentleness and love. Friends, if you're here for the first time, if you're not a Christian, if you're just checking it out, if your friend dragged you, I'm so happy they did. 
We drag people to church all the time, will not apologize for it. Here's the deal. You are not sitting in a room full of people who are just waiting to do the right thing so God would love them. That's not what we do. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God loved us even when we didn't love him. And because of that knowledge, and because we believe in that, because we believe that through God, Jesus Christ has paid our debt and forgiven us, we will now go and do. It's a completely different life change, isn't it? Here's a clarifying statement about love. Don't call it love if it is prideful. Don't call it love if it is aggressive or impatient or arrogant or selfish or manipulative or rude or loud or crass or hurtful, etc., etc., etc. That's not how we bear together in love. None of those things are love. I know some of you say, oh, I love you so much, I just got to scream at you. You're like, what? You've already confused them, so don't do that anymore. That's not love. The problem is, again, it's not that we don't want to love. It's that we don't truly understand what love is because we haven't got a grasp of who Jesus is. Paul says in these first couple verses, I want your spiritual position as a Christian, your spiritual position before God, to match everything that happens in your life. Now, that is a high calling, and you will fail. Just get ready for it. It's okay. I want your spiritual position to match your practical living. I want the scales to be balanced. And so I urge you then to become humble and gentle and patient and loving. The next three verses, four verses now. So that all those things, so that you preserve the unity of the spirit. So Paul says, eager, this is verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and who is through all and who is in all. Here's the main point. Big idea, balance the scales, right? Main point, the goal of a worthy walk then described in those four characteristics is all there. We're urged in that way so that we would preserve unity in the church. That's the main point. Our church isn't even three years old. We're going to be three in September. Yes. I'll, we'll take it. <laughs> A lot of people are not clapping. I don't know what that means. Um, that's, never mind. See, um, I, I will end now. Um, I type everything out so I don't say those things I want to say, okay? <laughs> yeah. Coming from the man who trained me and said, you better type everything out. Um, the goal of a worthy walk then is to preserve the unity of the spirit, right? So all of those things are going to lead to one unified spirit, one church. Because Paul just spent an entire chapter, chapter two, telling the Jews and the Gentiles, two different people groups, who have for generations hated one another, that they are one church now. You see that? People who literally wanted to kill and hate one another are now in the same church. They all believe in Jesus. So naturally, what does Paul have to do? He's like, yeah, you got to be unified. Why? Because this is what the church is. This is so the world can see us in unity. So that's Paul's call to us this morning. In a world full of disunity, may we urge one another in humility 
and gentleness and patience and in love. Why? So that the world outside of these walls would see who God is. Amen? Amen. The world needs to see something different. And we have it. We're in it. So that's why we got to live it. I'm going to pray, and then Adam's going to lead us in communion.